Well, hi everyone. Enjoy the service so far. My name's Graham. I'm the, the minister here at Robertson Anglican Church and uh, one of the ministers here. Uh, did you enjoy knowing Jesus as my boss? Did you go to that part of the service, the kids' song? It's a song for all ages. I quite like it. Anyway, enough of that. Let's, um, let's pray together before we start a new series on 1 Samuel 16 and 17. And we're spending six weeks on two chapters of 1 Samuel. I think it's going to be good. I hope, I hope you enjoy it. Let's, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us in the Lord Jesus. We thank you that even though we're not physically together, we're together by your spirit. And as we open your word now, you pray, we pray that, um, that you would be speaking to us and we'd be hearing your words. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it doesn't take long when you get a group of people together... It doesn't take long to figure out that on some subjects there are differing points of view. So, of course, we've got Ford and Holden. Don't start arguing now. Uh, we have rugby union versus that other simplified game. Uh, we have, well, political controversies, differing points of view. Even just the mention of, of a person's name, a politician's name, and we get different points of view. A celebrity scandal, a, uh, a sporting triumph or failure. Someone sees it this way, another person sees it that way. So what happens next? Well, these days, uh, the right thing to do, we're told, is to accept that we all have our own points of view and to accept all points of view as valid and equal. It's wrong to suggest that my point of view is more superior than yours. Different perceptions of things, different understandings of things are just quite literally points of view. Now, the mature, sophisticated, postmodern, tolerant approach to differences is to try and understand and appreciate other points of view and accept those viewpoints as valid, even if you disagree with them. So let me give you an example of, of, a, of an important subject where people definitely have different points of view. The person of Jesus Christ. Jesus. So here's one point of view about Jesus. That Jesus, according to the purposes of God himself, is the rightful rule of the universe. He's the saviour all of us need and he's the judge of all people. Now, there are many other points of view about Jesus, and they all have this in common, that he is none of the things that the first point of view think he is. In our world today, there are, these are just different opinions about Jesus. Just points of view, different ways of looking at things. Well, today, we're going to jump back into 1 Samuel again, as we've been doing for the last few years, and pick things, off, pick things up where we left off last year. Back to the days where the nation of Israel had asked for a king and uh, asked for and been given a king. Uh, king Saul, we're told a number of times, was the king they had chosen for themselves so they could be like the other nations. You might remember that. But Israel was God's people, a nation through whom God had promised to bring, to bring blessing through to the whole world. King Saul may have been able to win many battles. He may have been able to bring political stability and strength and rally the nation at times. But he disobeyed God. 
So he was a disaster. See, how can you, how can you live as God's people with a king who is disobedient to God? So in 1 Samuel 16, well, there's a dramatic new development. And as we explore this, we'll find the key to our very modern problem of different points of view. I hope you stay with me. So if you've got a Bible, open it up to 1 Samuel, verse, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 16. In fact, open it up to just the couple verses before that, won't you? And one, at the end of chapter 15. Chapter 15 ends with the prophets Samuel and Saul going their separate ways. Uh, Saul to, to Ramah and, uh, sorry, Samuel to Ramah, his hometown, and Saul to Gibeah, his hometown. Chapter 15 records, well, it records their falling out. They would not see each other again, and we're told Samuel mourned for him. Then we come to the last words of chapter 15. Have a look at them with me if you've got your Bible open there. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Well, some time passes and the Lord again spoke to the prophet Samuel. Let's hear what God said. 16 verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Now, you see, it's clear that Samuel was affected by the leadership mess in Israel. He cared deeply for God's people. And you might remember back in chapter 12, he promised to always pray for them. But what's also clear is his affection for Saul. He weeps for him. But I, but I think he weeps for him from the context of chapter 15 because of his unfaithfulness to the Lord, just as he weeps over Israel and their sin. But today, the Lord said, it's no time for mourning. Today's no time for mourning. Today was not a time for pats on the back. You know, there, there, Samuel, it's going to be okay. It's not time for that. No, Samuel is rebuked by the Lord. The prophet, you see, had lost sight of God's hand in all that had happened with Saul. God had forgotten his people Israel. God had forgotten his purposes, even though God had rejected Saul as king over Israel. But from the very beginning, you see, Saul's kingship was defined by rejection. Remember how it all started? Uh, back in 1 Samuel 10 verse 9, Samuel speaks to the people as Saul is made king. And he says, but you have, re you have now rejected your king who saves you out of all disasters and calamities. And you have said, no, appoint a king for us like the other nations. In fact, in chapter 15, Samuel is even more blunt with Saul. He says in verse 26, just as you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you. Rejection has defined his kingship, Saul's kingship. And now Samuel needs to recognize the rightness of God's judgment. Grieving was over, time to move on. God is working out his purposes. And so the Lord commands Samuel. Fill your horn, verse 1, chapter 16, fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I've chosen one of his sons to be king. God has his point of view. But we'll come back to that later. But what should grab our attention here is that this king would be God's choice. Do you see that? In fact, God spoke of, literally, I have seen for myself... 
I've seen among his sons for myself a king. Literally, that, that's, the, that's the sentence. God spoke of providing for myself a king. Now, this was in direct contrast to the appointment of Saul, who was, of course, a king chosen for the people by themselves. 1 Samuel 8 verse 5. But this king would be a different kind of king. A king for myself, said the Lord God. Or as chapter 13 hinted at, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. Well, Samuel, he was not overly keen on this idea. Naturally, you see, if he goes and appoints another king, King Saul's not, not going to be very impressed. In fact, verse 2, Samuel is worried about being killed by Saul if Samuel goes and appoints another king. And to make matters worse, to get to Bethlehem, Samuel would have had to go through Saul's hometown of Gibeah. Nevertheless, the Lord continued. The Lord said, take a heifer with you, it's halfway through verse 2, and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I'll show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. So, verse 4, Samuel did as the Lord said. Even though scared, he was frightened. You see, obedience to the word of God is often scary. It's often hard. But he obeyed God, doing what Saul failed to do. Well, it turns out Samuel and Saul's falling out was a little more public than they would have liked. And Beth, the Bethlehem leaders, well, they didn't want to have anything to do with it. So we pick things up in verse 4. When he, and Samuel, arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? They were worried. The, the falling out, the argument, so to speak, would end up on their doorstep and cause trouble. But Samuel replied, yes, I come in peace. It's all okay. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And it's funny how the elders, well, the elders here in Bethlehem, don't ask at all, why is he sacrificing in Bethlehem? What are you doing here? They didn't, they didn't ask that. In any case, we're, we're, he assured them that his intentions were good, they were safe and peaceful, and, uh, but he also wanted to meet Jesse's sons. So the scene's set, but this is going to be no ordinary sacrifice. What we see in the next few verses is two ways of th seeing things. See, there's God's way of seeing things, and there's our way of seeing things. Two different points of view. So first, seeing things as we do. Have a look at verse 6. In verse 6, Samuel meets Eliab. Now, Eliab's probably Jesse's eldest son. Surely this is the bloke. Look at him, he thought. He's a fine specimen. A little like Rod Wallace in his younger days. He's a striking young man. Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord, Samuel said. In Samuel's eyes, his point of view, this is the type of man God would choose as king. Maybe he'd forgotten already 
how the last really, really, really ridiculously good-looking king went. Saul. But let's now have a look at verse 7. Let's try to understand how God sees things. Have a look at verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Are we starting to understand the way God sees things? It's different than the way we see things, isn't it? You see, God is not limited as humans are in his point of view. He's not deceived by outward appearances like we are. How good looking they are, for example. That's not important to him. He sees a person's heart. We're limited by our experiences, our understanding, our knowledge. No wonder we have different points of view. But God is not limited by that. So if God has a point of view, it's not one more among many others. His unlimited point of view will have absolute authority. See, the point being made in verse 7, however, is not some airbrushed, soppy notion of the heart. The point being made is that God sees things according to his heart. Now, friends, this is very, very important. God's point of view is determined by his own will and purposes, his intentions, his heart. See, I reckon this is the most important verse of 1 and 2 Samuel. In fact, if you'd like, you can argue this is the most important verse of the Bible. You can debate over that later, in the, later after the service over your scones. But let's go back to chapter 13, verse 14. You might remember this. When Samuel said, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. Now, what did he mean? See, Samuel's not speaking about of the man's godliness with a heart like God's. No, a man after God's own heart means a man of God's own choosing, a man according to God's heart. Remember verse 1? I have seen for myself a king. A man after God's own heart is talking about the place the man has in God's heart rather than the place that God has in the man's heart. Now think about that for a moment. Consider that. See, these statements are at the heart of the Bible's message. They're about God's gracious and sovereign purposes rather than some quality of a bloke in Bethlehem. It's the gospel in a nutshell, is it not? It's what it is. It's, it's, it's how we're saved. God's doing, not ours. God's heart, not my heart. It's God who does it. Not, not mine, not my heart, not yours, but God's heart that saves. Well, David has a particular place in God's heart, God's purposes, and that is what made him so very different from Saul. Okay, now we've seen how the Lord sees. Let's get to chapter 16, verses 8 to 10. So Jesse calls the rest of his sons through. It's a bit like a, a schoolyard pick, you know. They all parade by. Who's going to get in? Who's going to get chosen? But none of Jesse's sons was the one the Lord had seen according to his heart as a king for himself. Ah, but wait, there's another. 
there's the youngest. Are you the youngest? Uh, once again, are you the youngest in your family? You'll get this. You'll, you'll feel it. Don't worry. So the youngest gets left behind. Home alone. Tending the sheep. As a youngest in my family, I, I feel you, David. I get it. So it seems Samuel has to ask Jesse if there was another son. Really? Now, maybe I'm exaggerating us a little bit, but look at verse 11. Verse 11, so Samuel asks uh, Jesse, are these all your sons you have? Imagine Jesse going, yep, that's them. It's all of them. Yep, uh, you've seen them all. Oh, hold on. They're, they're, yeah. <laughs> I've just forgotten. There's the youngest. Uh, yeah. he's, he's, he's down tending the sheep. Maybe I'm exaggerating him anyway. Look what he says. There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep. Samuel said, go, Samuel said um, uh, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. Go, Samuel. Yeah, make him wait. Make him wait. And so they did wait. Don't know how long for. Well, we come to verse 12. And once again, Jesse and his wife have produced a, uh, another ridiculously good-looking international top model. So verse 12, uh, David... David appears. David was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So verse 13, in obedience to God's command, way back at the start of the chapter, Samuel anoints David, but not because of Samuel's choice, nor anything to do with David's good looks. No, no, it was simply because the Lord willed it. This is the one on whom God had set his heart to be a king for him. Now, friends, I, I doubt anyone that day in Bethlehem knew the significance of what was going on. They naturally saw things with their own eyes from their point of view. Fair enough. They certainly could not have realised that what happened that day in Bethlehem would eventually lead to another day for which this little town of Bethlehem became most famous. That fame was anticipated by the prophet Micah, who wrote some 200 years after this day in Bethlehem. Micah 5 verse 2, it's quoted in Matthew 2 verse 6 as well. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. You see, in fact, really the only way anyone can see the true significance of what happened that day in Bethlehem, in the days of Samuel, or in the days of Saul, or in the days of David, or the significance even of the days of King Herod and Caesar Augustus, is to see things from God's point of view. And friends, I reckon that's the answer to our problem of points of view. The Bible's answer to our very modern problem that every viewpoint is equally valid. Here's the answer. God has a point of view. God has a point of view. Friends, that's the point of view that really matters. My tolerance and kindness, yes, they're called for and important. Recognising that human knowledge is not all-knowing is something we should all agree with. But human knowledge is not the only knowledge. What Christians claim is that God's point of view has absolute authority because he's God. That knowledge trumps all other knowledge. And this is precisely what the Word of God teaches us. It teaches us to see David as God sees him. It teaches us to see David's greatest descendant as God sees him. 
It's what happened. It's what the shepherds, remember in, in Luke 2, a thousand years after Samuel anointed David, learned to see. And Luke 2 verse 10, But the angels said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. Today in the town of David, a Saviour has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord, God's King, the Messiah. And then in verse 20, the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen. They saw things as God sees things. So friends, how's your vision? Are you seeing things clearly? Or do you have no more than your own point of view? How about we pray? Father, we thank you that you're a God who speaks. And let us be people that listen. Lord, thank you for your point of view, which is true and faithful and everlasting. Lord, may we see things as you th see things. In Jesus' name. Amen. See you next time.